Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful to have um, heard your word read aloud, to be reminded who you are. And now as we uh, prepare to jump in and, and walk through this passage, we pray, Father, that you would uh, guide us, that you would uh, speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our ears to, uh, to hear and see and understand, Lord, what uh, your word says for us this morning. We love you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, and once again, happy Mother's Day. It's so good to be here with you guys. Would you go ahead and uh, open up in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 4, which is where we are going to be, as we just heard it read aloud, and we are uh, continuing our sermon series, just walking through the Gospel of John, little by little. We've called the series Come and See, because each week it's simply an invitation to look at Jesus and see who he is and what he's called us to. And uh, this is actually part two, week two of a three-part mini-series, series within a series, dream within a dream, inception sort of thing, um, where we're looking at this encounter that Jesus had with this woman at a well in Samaria. So join me in John chapter 4, uh, verse 19. And hey, as you're getting ready, we wanted to highlight another uh, part of our Go Where You Are initiative. For the, again, the first half of this calendar year, our church has been uh, in a phase we've called Go Where You Are, where we've tried to see ourselves as as missionaries, right, living as missionaries on mission with God, not overseas, not far away, but right here, where we are, where he has placed us. There is good work for us to do here in Benicia and Vallejo in the Bay Area. So we've called it Go Where You Are, seeing God has purposely placed us here. And part of that initiative has been a monthly challenge, right? So every month there's been one challenge, a step, action, item that we've invited everyone to participate in as a way to be on mission, to live out our faith. And so we've had a a number of different challenges. But this month, now that it's May, wanted to to share the new monthly challenge. And that is to uh, share the gospel with someone. Okay, that's the challenge. This month, to pray for an opportunity, pray for an open door, take a step to share the good news of Jesus with someone, uh, preferably someone on your your for list, someone that you've been praying for for a long time. And I know that maybe feels a little formulaic or forced to say, oh, this month I got to do this and complete this. But sometimes when we have a goal, a target, uh, doors open up. Things happen more than if we were to just say, oh, eventually I'll share the gospel with someone somewhere. Here is like an opportunity to pray, Lord, would you use me to share the good news of Jesus with someone this month? Sound good? All right. Also, hey, uh, Go Where You Are is kind of coming to a close as the first half of the year is almost over, right? We're almost uh, towards the middle of the year. And so what we're going to be trying to do here soon is collect some stories and just hear from you all what it's been like for you to to do these monthly challenges, to, again, starting back in January with the Your Four card, what has God taught you through this time? And so uh, Darren and I, we're going to be reaching out and, and hopefully hearing back from some of you guys on, hey, what's it been like? What have you learned? What has God taught you through this experience? So just be thinking about that, and, and hopefully we'll be able to hear from some of you. With, okay, moving on into the text. Here's the deal. In the ancient world, often people were faced with uncertainty 
about how to please the gods. Okay, people wanted to please the gods, but they were seen as capricious and hard to please. And so people tried to appease the gods or their local gods in all kinds of ways, all kinds of tips and tricks and tactics in hopes that their gods would be satisfied. But the people often lived in fear and uncertainty. They simply didn't know what their gods wanted or how to make them happy. And so, again, they went to even extreme lengths to try to please their gods. You would see in some cultures even child sacrifice or, or self-harm or all kinds of, of violence against themselves or others as a way to appease their gods. But still, at the end of the day, they didn't know if their gods would hear them. I think it looks a lot different today, obviously, for us, but I think still today people wonder, and they ask that question, what does God want? What sort of worship is pleasing to God, right? If there is a God out there, what does this God expect of me? What sort of worship would please this God. Some of us maybe shrug off that question. Maybe some of us don't wonder about that. But I, my hunch is if you're here this morning, you wonder at least sort of a little bit about that question or you wouldn't be here, right? You wouldn't care. But we all kind of wonder what sort of worship is acceptable to God. The good news is that uh, the God of Scripture doesn't leave us in the dark, doesn't leave us on our own to try and figure that out. Actually, in Scripture, God tells us quite clearly what sort of worship he expects, what sort of worship is acceptable to him, how we are to please him and come before him. And Jesus actually lays it out for us in John chapter 4, in the passage that was just read for us. Here's the kind of worship that is pleasing or acceptable to God. A little bit of a recap. If you missed last week, we started... Uh, chapter 4 by looking at this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. And the fact that they were talking at all was quite striking, right? Because Jews and Samaritans were like oil and water. They didn't get along for a number of reasons. There were centuries of conflict and racial tension and religious disagreements. But Jesus, we saw last week, right, crosses all those cultural barriers in order to connect with this woman. Jesus crosses this chasm, and he reminds us that he'll meet us where we are. Right? When Jesus is coming to you, there are no cultural barriers that are going to keep him away. And we saw last week that ultimately Jesus offers this woman, what? Living water. Water that will quench the deepest longing and thirst of our souls. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but what? Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we also saw last week as the story unfolded that this woman has somewhat of a complicated past Right? She's had five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. And so likely along the way, there's a mixed bag right, of her, her own sin and, and moral choices, but also abandonment and rejection and, and divorce that perhaps she didn't want. We don't know, but it's probably a combination. But either way, there's some clear uh, wound here that's led to social isolation, 
that's led to shame. And Jesus shows up and he, he shows her. He already knows all about her and her past. And he's still willing to engage with her and offer her this living water. And it's at that point that the story takes a turn. And we heard the verses that Kim just read. Verse 19, how she responds. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And then verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so notice what's going on here. Jesus brings up this woman's questionable past. He points out that he already knows all about it. And what does she do? She rather abruptly moves to a conversation about worship. Now, our first impression of this maybe is that she simply has this knee-jerk reaction where she's uh, trying to get out of Dodge. She's doing what maybe we all do when we're embarrassed, right? Quick, change the subject. Right, someone asks you, hey, what, what was the last time that you, you loved and served your spouse sacrificially? Say, well, uh, hey, actually, instead, let's talk about the book of Revelation. What are your opinions on the end times? Can we talk about biblical prophecy instead? That's much more comfortable for me. Now, maybe this is something... Uh, like that, that's going on in the text. She's trying to deflect and change the subject. That's part of it, I think. But also, let's give this woman a little bit of credit here and see that her question, if you think about it, her question is actually pretty reasonable, right? She's encountered Jesus. She's clearly talking to someone who has spiritual insight, supernatural knowledge. Clearly, this is a man who's competent to talk about spiritual things because of all that he's just told her. And so, she does, again, something quite natural. She raises this big theological question, one of the, the biggest debates of the day between Jews and Samaritans, and she wants to know, what do you have to say about this? It's a reasonable question. And here's a question, right? You see, is it appropriate to worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or worship in Jerusalem? Which one is the proper way to worship? See, from, from where they were standing, they were at a well, right, in, in the, the heat of the day. From there in Samaria, they likely would be able to see Mount Gerizim off in the distance. Mount Gerizim was one of the, uh, a pretty well-known site in the Old Testament. Several important things happened there. But over the centuries, what unfolded was that it became basically the Samaritan equivalent of the temple in Jerusalem, right? The Jews in Jerusalem saw their temple as the most holy site and place of worship, but for the Samaritans, they rejected the Jerusalem temple and instead said, Mount Gerizim is the place where you're supposed to worship. This is the most holy site where we are to draw near to God. And this was a huge point of tension between Jews and Samaritans. Is where that you worship? What does proper worship look like? In fact, roughly two centuries before this conversation we're looking at in John 4, a Jewish king went to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And so likely as this conversation is happening with Jesus and this woman, they could see the, the ruins of the temple there in the distance. Jews often would not even let Samaritans into the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans mocked the temple in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of animosity around this question. Mount Gerizim or the temple in Jerusalem, where is 
the right place to worship. So sure, Jesus, you're being all friendly. You're crossing these uh, social, cultural barriers. That's really nice of you. But what do you say about this worship question, this seemingly insurmountable divide between us when it comes to worship? You see his response. Look at his response in verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers in their seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Okay, so a few things we see from Jesus' response. First, there are some things that he tells us that worship is not. Hey, here's what worship is not about. And then he's going to tell us some things that worship is about, what true worship does look like. So first, the the nots. Here's what true worship is not about. First, true worship is not about geography or ritual. Okay, look at verse 21, his, his first words on this matter. Woman... Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, I I understand the disagreement about worship between us, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. But when it comes to worship, where is really the wrong question? Okay, True worship is not really about geography. It's not really about location, a time is coming, and actually verse 23 even says a time has now come, is breaking in in the ministry of Jesus, when it's not going to matter what mountain you are standing on. You can worship the Father in a way that transcends location and geography and a building. Okay, A new age is played here, essentially. He's saying when you don't have to travel to a temple or a holy place to worship God, you can worship the Father Anywhere. Amen. Right now, holy sites in the Old Testament, holy places, again, had their place and their purpose. But he's trying to help this woman see, hey, this whole debate about which mountain you should worship on and where you should worship is, is really missing the point. Because worship, true worship, is bigger than geography. It's bigger than location. It really transcends these two options that she's putting in front of him. And so her mindset, think about this though, her mindset was one that we sometimes share today. Sometimes even still today, we think that that worship is about geography or ritual, right? If I just go to the right place at the right time and do the right sorts of spiritual gestures, that's going to count as worship. Then I've worshiped properly. If I go to church at at 9 o'clock on Sunday, and I close my eyes when we pray, and I listen to the sermon, and I sing, I, I sing a song or two, maybe raise a hand if I'm getting bold, you know, then that counts as worship. Sometimes we think that. We see worship maybe as more of an event, some kind of mechanical transaction that we have to engage in. Right? We'll say worship is what happens on a Sunday morning, a few times a month possibly, or worship is when I, again, go to church, sing some songs, and don't get me wrong, uh, Sunday morning corporate worship is special, it's unique, it's central to our life 
together as a church family. But Jesus is trying to help us see that worship is about more than location and geography and ritual. In fact, worship is just as much about your Monday to Saturday as it is Sunday. Verse 21, worshiping the Father is not about Mount Gerizim. It's not about Jerusalem. It's actually bigger than that. Okay, so that's his first point. It's not about geography. There's more. He continues. True worship is not about geography or ritual, but true worship is also not a free-for-all. Okay, see it in the text. It's not a free-for-all. Verse 22, what does he say? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is not very politically correct of Jesus. He's He's playing hardball here a little bit. This is an important line in the text. And here's the deal. It's easy for us to kind of overlook this verse. But notice, Jesus is not neutral in the debate about worship between Jews and Samaritans. He's not neutral. Neutral. He says, salvation is from the Jews. He says, Wilmington's, I'm sorry, but you worship what you do not know. In other words, yes, woman of Samaria, there's a bigger picture here about worship I'm trying to help you see. But hey, by the way, you're, you're wrong. You and your people are wrong about worship. See, the Samaritans only accepted uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They threw out the rest, the writings of the prophets and so on. They said, we don't like those. We're not going to include those in our holy scriptures. So they had part of the story, but not the full story. In fact, the Samaritans had essentially set themselves up outside of the stream of God's revelation. They're saying, hey, Mount Gerizim is better than Jerusalem. Jesus is like, well, no, it's not. Throwing out books of the Bible, Jesus says, no, actually, you shouldn't do that. And they're saying, our fathers got it right. And Jesus says to this woman, no, you're wrong. Your father was wrong. Your grandfather was wrong. The Samaritans, you guys got it wrong. Now think about this. Maybe people are getting uncomfortable. I don't know. But uh, up until this, this verse, this passage has been fairly uh, friendly, let's say, to modern sensibilities. Right? Jesus looks past this woman's sin. <laughs> Amazing. He, he loves her. He engages her. He crosses cultural barriers to reach her. He is inclusive. Worship, worship is about more than just a building. It's about your heart. A lot of us gravitate to that message and say, oh, that warms my heart. That's true. I love that. I want to hear more of that. And th- those are, are true. But then here in verse 22, he says a word that's sort of difficult for some of us to hear. Hey, Samaritan lady, you're wrong. And you worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews, not the Samaritans. Now, Amber and I, actually, we've been watching this TV show. Anyone seen The Chosen? We've been watching The Chosen. Okay, if you, yeah, so we've been, we've been digging The Chosen. It's a, a scripted TV show about the life of Jesus and the disciples. It's actually really well done. Sometimes Christian TV or movies has, like, a bad reputation because it's kind of cheesy or low quality. Or but The Chosen, The Chosen is good, okay? We've, we've been enjoying it. It's not perfect, but uh, for the most part, we've been enjoying it. And they have this uh, scene. They, they do this scene with Jesus and the woman at the well. And overall, really enjoyed that scene. Watch it. it. It was great. But I noticed in this scene, in the video, they actually left out this verse. They left out this line. They skipped over it. I don't, I don't know exactly why they did that. 
But I, I wonder, I wonder if maybe it's because it's a bit more confrontational than the rest of the passage. It's a bit more challenging for us to hear. See, increasingly today, right, our culture is moving away from the idea of objective truth or capital T truth, truth that is uh, applicable to all people in all places at all times. Our culture pushes against objective truth. And instead, we, our culture really could be described as post-truth, right? People want to get past the idea of objective truth and say there's no bigger picture, there's no um, meta-narrative, there's only subjective experience and personal truth, lowercase t, truth, right? It's about, it's about your truth, speak your truth, live your truth, or about my truth, or whatever, and they don't all have to align, and they would say, well, all paths to God or spirituality are equally valid. And anything else would potentially be seen as narrow-minded. But Jesus says, actually, no, there's truth and there's falsehood. There are right ways to worship and, and wrong ways. And Samaritans, I'm sorry, you're wrong on this one. You're wrong about the Bible, he says. You're wrong about Mount Gerizim because salvation is from the Jews. So, friends, true worship is not a free-for-all, not just do whatever, think whatever, believe whatever you want. It's just maybe our modern sensibilities would want that to be true. That's not the testimony of Scripture. It's not the testimony of Jesus. See, God the Creator says, actually, here's what I expect and here's what I require. Those who will worship me are to do it in a certain way. And Jesus says quite clearly and the rest of scripture affirms that there's there's one way to be saved there's one way to come to the father it's through faith in Jesus and i think i think if we think about it, this this makes sense right a lot of life uh, in reality works this way i actually heard your preacher Alistair Begg compare it to a game of soccer he's like hey when you go and play soccer there's one way to score a point Right? What's that way? The ball has to go through the net. Like, that's the way. You don't just say when you're playing soccer, hey, kick the ball anywhere. We'll, we'll throw some points up on the scoreboard for you. All right? He's like, there's, there's one way to score. It's, it's narrow. It's specific. Not just do whatever you want. Kick it wherever you want. And so Jesus says, woman of Samaria, salvation is from the Jews. You're wrong. We say, well, she's living her truth. And he says, well, that's fine. But her truth isn't the truth. He's trying to show her what is true. Okay, so we've seen two things, what true worship is not. It's not about geography or ritual. I mean, whatever, really like that concept. Ooh, that, that's open, that's inclusive, it's about the heart, not as religious or about the building or whatever. But then we hear, hey, it's actually not a free-for-all either. It's, it's quite specific and narrow. And some of you say, oh, I'm not sure I like that. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Well, stay with me. So here is what it really is all about. Jesus is going to bring it together to what worship is. Verse 23 Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's the phrase, spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit, the spirit and in truth. A time is coming and has now come in the ministry and life of Jesus. This new era is breaking into the world where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and truth. Spirit and truth. It actually even says what? That the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking them, not waiting for them to come find him. We see actually in this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, divine providence, God moving toward this woman the same way that he moves towards us. And so we see this contrast from earlier. Think about it. The woman was asking, hey, should we worship in the temple in Jerusalem or should we worship at Mount Gerizim? And Jesus said you should worship in the Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, God's personal indwelling presence. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our worship then is, is uh, starting with this foundational internal change, the very presence of God dwelling within us that justifies us and then sanctifies us. Our worship then is empowered by the Spirit and centered on God and his word, right, truth in line with who God has revealed himself to be. And so true worship is not about where, but it's about who. Who are we worshiping? The one true God, the, the creator of heaven and earth, one God existing eternally in, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if true worship is spirit and truth, empowered by the Spirit, focused on who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be, that sort of worship can, can take place anywhere. Right? It's not about superficial signs or rituals or buildings, but about inner life with God. A heart that is devoted to, directed towards God. Further, verse 24, you notice, fills this out by saying what? God is Spirit. That's a key piece of the, the life. God is, he's not, like us, limited by a body resigned to one physical location. God is spirit, therefore unseen, often unnoticed, but by the power of the spirit, then God's present everywhere. And so because of that, this new age, again, is inaugurated where we don't have to travel to temple to worship, but because of the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to worship God anywhere. So Jesus is trying to help us see that worship, it's really a matter of the heart. It's really about what's going on inside of you and your connection, your response to the living God. That's what he's hoping this woman sees. So, a few implications. Okay, True worship is in spirit and truth. A few implications. First, it's possible to go to the right place and do the sorts of things that worshipers are supposed to do and still not engage in true worship. In other words, you can go through the motions, go to the right place, do the right sorts of things with your body, and it's not actually true worship. Why? Because worship is supposed to be in spirit and truth. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of something that's going on within you, connecting and responding to God. So you can do those things on the outside, but if on the inside nothing's going on, people reading not genuinely responding to God, then that's not true worship. If you've been on our Bible reading plan, we've been reading through the Old Testament. We've been reading through the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see this fascinating scene where God's talking to his people, and they keep coming to him with, with offerings and sacrifices, and they're doing their rituals, and they're having their assemblies, and they're having their festivals, and he goes as far to say that he hates all of those things. Think about that. 
all these people, they're doing all this churchy stuff, coming to God with all these offerings and praises and songs and sacrifices and assemblies. And God goes as far to say that he hates their offerings. He hates the things that they're bringing. He says they're a burden to him. And they're making him weary. Why? He goes on to explain, hey, you're doing all this religious stuff, jumping through all these spiritual hoops, going through the motions, but you're missing the heart of worship. You may honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so, friends, we can go to church, we can sing some songs, we can hear a message, we can close our eyes during the prayer time and not truly engage in worship because true worship is in, in spirit and truth, not geography or ritual, but a genuine encounter with God in response to who he is. Monday, second implication, true worship involves our whole lives. Monday to Saturday, not just Sunday. Think about it this way. The problem in Isaiah, if we look back at Isaiah chapter 1 that I just referenced, the problem, again, wasn't that people weren't coming to church. God wasn't like, you guys keep going to Tahoe on weekends instead of coming to church. I'm very bothered by that. You're not doing enough churchy stuff. That wasn't the problem, right? They were coming to church. They were doing all the rituals and offerings and sacrifices and all the churchy religious stuff. But the problem was what was going on out there Monday to Saturday in the rest of their lives. Saying, your hearts are far from me. You, you come here and you sing some songs, but then you go out there and your lives are so out of line with what I want for you. So worship involves our whole lives. And so God in Isaiah chapter 1 says to his people, like, here's what I want you to do. Okay, I'm not as worried about the offerings and the sacrifices and the rituals and the assemblies. You're, you're doing all that. What I want is you to go wash your hands from all the blood that's on them because you're violent. I want you to go learn to do what is right. I want you to go defend the oppressed. I want you to seek justice. I want you to take care of orphans. I want you to take care of widows. In other words, I want your lives Monday to Saturday to be in line with what you say you believe on Sunday. For God. And so it's good, hear me, it's good to come before God when we're broken, when we realize our sin, when we realize that our lives are out of line with God. Right? That's, that's why we come here, right? To repent, to pray, to worship, to, to refresh our commitment to the Lord. Absolutely. But there's a difference between that approach and, hey, we're just going to do whatever we want Monday to Saturday. Come here, go through the motions, kind of with a proud heart, an unrepentant heart, and try and make, make a mockery of worship. God says, that doesn't please me. I heard one pastor put it this way. I found this so helpful. He said, affection is not a replacement for obedience. Hear that one more time. Affection is not a replacement for obedience. Okay, if you're a parent, you know that this is true. Because every parent has had a moment, we've all been there, where you tell your child, your son or your daughter, hey, I want you to either go do this or go don't do this, and then they go against what you tell them to do, or they do the opposite of what you tell them to do, and then you get mad or frustrated and try to discipline them. And then as you're going to do that, they say, I love you, Daddy, and give you a kiss and a big hug, right? I love you, give me a big hug. Because they know you're frustrated. They know you're coming to correct them, and so they try and give you affection to make it right. And what do you do in that moment? If 
it's me. I say it's it's kind of you're kind of conflicted because you're like, thank you for the hug, Zoe, and the kiss, and yes, thank you for the I love you, Daddy. That's great. But what I really want is you to stop tackling Daniel or tackling your brother, right? Or or thank you for the I love you, Daddy. Thank you for the hug. But what I really want is you to go back to your room and go to sleep. Okay, that's how you can communicate your love for me right now. Go and just go to sleep. Or thank you for the kiss, but what I really want is you to stop splashing water all over the bathroom, right? And making everything wet. Okay, so the affection is great. I appreciate the affection, but what I really want is obedience. Affection is not a replacement for obedience. And so the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. God says, I love that you turn your, your, your K-love up in the radio and you sing your songs of Jesus on the way to work. Or I love that you raise your hands in worship. I love that you post on Instagram. You're so passionate about me. But what I really want is you to listen to what I say and obey me and trust me in the rest of your life. So worship involves our whole lives. And affection is not a replacement for obedience. If we're to worship in spirit and truth, it means we bring our whole lives under the authority and direction of God. Time, money, relationships, it all belongs to you. One specific area I want to briefly speak to is our calendars. Yeah, can we talk about our calendars, our daily, weekly rhythms, our calendars? One of the biggest dangers to our spiritual lives today is being busy, Being hurried is a fantastic book by John Mark Comer that speaks to this. Many of us are simply too busy to hear from God. In the book, he quotes Corey Ten Boom, who says, If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. The devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because hurry and busyness just kills our spiritual lives. Jesus invites us to experience his spirit, to live a life of of worship, of joy and peace, following him with him at the center. But but so few of us would actually define or categorize our walk with Jesus in that way because our, our daily, weekly rhythms aren't directed around Jesus. We have so little space to listen, to hear his voice, to pray, to to rest. I mean, every empty moment is just filled up with our phones, or another commitment. It's hard to worship in spirit and truth if we're constantly distracted with noise or another podcast or another scroll through social media or another commitment event that we're rushing to, right? So sometimes following Jesus is not about things you need to add into your schedule. It's about things you need to cut out, things you need to take away so that you have space to hear from God and to truly worship him. Friends, next week we're going to look at part three of this encounter. We're going to see how this whole scene with the woman at the well wraps up. But for today, just one more thought I want you to see in verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And so Jesus goes on this full discourse, right, about worship that we all just heard, and she says, yeah, maybe. When the Messiah comes, uh, he'll sort all this out. He'll, he'll explain it. He'll make sense of this for us. We'll see who's right then. We'll see what he has to say about your little sermon here, Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, the one you're talking about, the Messiah, that's me. 
the one speaking to you. I am he. I am the Messiah. And so Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to this woman of Samaria. Not the big, powerful, elite, not his own people, not the Jews back in Jerusalem, but to this Samaritan woman. It reminds us of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came to rescue us and save us, not because of our works or our merit, that we're so lovely that we earned his favor, but simply because he is gracious and kind and has bestowed this gift of salvation and forgiveness upon us for whoever would believe. And it reminds us that true worship, if we're going to worship God in spirit and truth in a way that aligns with the spirit of God and the truth of scripture and who God has revealed himself to be, it means that we're going to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're going to celebrate the cross, the way that he's made a way for us to be in relationship with him and take away our sin and cleanse us and adopt us into his family all through the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we we thank you for your word and we just, just want to reflect on this last note here, this fact that you are the Messiah. You declare yourself to be the Savior of the world, the one who came to live the perfect life that we could not live and die a death that we deserved because of sin. Jesus, you took our place. You died for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be healed, so that we could be uh, and brought into your family. And so, Jesus, we worship you as our Savior. We worship you as our King. And Lord, we pray that you would help us worship you in spirit and in truth. As we leave this place and go out into our Monday to Saturday, we pray that you would help us put you at the center. Lord, respond to you out of a genuine heart and love for you. Would you guide us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.